turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, we're headed into a new section for a couple of chapters here in our exposition of Corinthians. Here is the infallible, inspired, and errant word of God. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and the swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the, the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Let's ask God's help to understand. Lord, we pray that your word would quicken us this morning. That these true words, which are inspired, would break through our hearts and our minds. That they would penetrate the numbness and the darkness of our hearts and that they would quicken us spiritually that they would open our eyes to the truth and that these words would so grip us that our life would be transformed that we would have hearts and minds which are uh, ready to receive the warnings and the admonition at the same time also that we would have faith to reach out to Jesus Christ who speaks to us in this message this morning and lay hold of him our great sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls. Uh, hear us for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I still have communication theories on my brain, and I'm going to share another one this morning that uh, in some way relates to our passage here. And I found this one in a book called uh, The Tipping Point. You may have read that book, The Tipping Point. It was a bestseller by Malcolm Gladwell, published some years back. Fascinating book that, that analyzed and studied and explained social revolutions. And Gladwell's basic point is this, that social revolutions occur in increments. And as they grow and build, finally, they reach a tipping point. But usually they reach a tipping point and become a social revolution rather than a local revolution by just the small things. 
And one of the small things that he points to that causes uh, these movements to tip in order to become uh, society changing and cultural changing is communication. And particularly, uh, he refers to what he calls the stickiness factor. The stickiness factor of a message. Uh, There's something about the context and the situation in which the communication is uttered, first of all. But beyond that, there's a way uh, that the message is spoken about. Uh, There's something about the substance of the message that somehow grips hearts and minds. It so grips and so captivates people that they want to share it immediately. And it begins to spread something like the image of wildfire. Well, how does that relate to our passage? Well, you can see that here in verse 1. That there was a stickiness factor to the message here because he said it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. There is your stickiness factor. It's actually reported. It's a well-known public fact, not only in Corinth, not only within the church, but within the community around you, that you're harboring the kinds of people that even the Gentiles wouldn't welcome into their fellowship. As Paul takes note of that fact this morning, he calls upon the Corinthian church to do what Christ commanded the church to do, which is to discipline those who openly uh, refuse to submit to his word. And that is to exercise church discipline. We're going to get into that topic this morning. But first of all, uh, we need to see some of the component parts of this. Uh, Paul talks about the fact that it's reported. Who reported it to Paul? After all, uh, Paul is... In Ephesus at this point, many miles away from Corinth. And it's probably the case that Chloe's household, the same people who advised him of the divisions and the factions going on in the church, also advised him uh, that there is uh, this scandalous sin being tolerated and permitted among the church. And he says, the immorality is among you. It's not out there in the world. It's not something that you need to go protest against. It's not something that you need to hold signs up uh, in public somewhere to call attention to some uh, uh, fact of social injustice. He said, it's happening among you. And here's the, here's the thing that it is. Here's the problem that he uh, points out here. He says, it's immorality. Now, that's a very generic word in English, but in the original, it's not generic at all. It's porneia. It's sexual immorality. And he says, it's of such a nature that it wouldn't even be tolerated in the world. There's two things about it, he says. First of all, it does not even exist among the Gentiles. And so you'd have to ask the question, in a a culture that's absolutely riddled with sexual immorality, what could it possibly be? What could it possibly be that would be uh, so objectionable that the culture around the church would even reject the crime? Well, it's spelled out here at the end of the verse. It says that someone has his father's wife. Now, in this case, it's probably not this man's maternal mother. That would be objectionable. But most likely, it's his stepmother. In the ancient world... uh, especially in Corinth and some parts of Roman culture, uh, divorce was a very common matter. It was, uh, it was legal for either husbands or wives to uh, freely go to the magistrate and petition their way out of the marriage. And in fact, it happened quite often. People frequently 
divorced in the ancient culture. And it's probably the case that this a particular woman is maybe two or three wives removed from the original spouse. But at any rate, uh, somehow this man uh, believes that it's okay for him to engage in marriage with this particular woman who happened to be his father's wife. And that was so particularly heinous to the culture that they, uh, they shunned people who did that kind of a thing. It wasn't just among the Greeks that this was a problem. The Old Testament speaks of this thing. Leviticus 18 and other parts of the Old Testament. In fact, God hated this, uh, this sin so bad that he commanded the death penalty for anybody who would marry his father's wife. That's what Paul is talking about here when he says, Someone has his father's wife. Someone within the Corinthian church has violated and transgressed uh, God's law in a scandalous way. And so here the Apostle Paul says, and he's not even in Corinth, after he's heard about it, he's already judged the case. You can see that uh, in verse 3. He says, On my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. Now this is a very uh, peculiar way of speaking. Uh, Paul talks about being absent in body, but present in the spirit. Uh, You could really confound this and make it more difficult than it is, but I think a common sense reading is probably the best way to understand this. He says, I'm simply not there, but I can even understand from so far away that this kind of sin is bad, and I'm telling you, based on my authority right here, this is the sentence that must be imposed, and I'm passing it here, even though I'm not with you bodily, but you must receive my authority, you must receive my decision, you must agree that it has way, you must agree that it flows from and is shaped by God's law. And now he's calling upon these Corinthians here to ratify his judgment. And they don't even have to do much work. They're already aware that uh, culturally and biblically, uh, this is an act which is intolerable. And so in verse 13, after repeatedly calling upon them to, to... To excommunicate, he says very clearly, the very last words of our passage, he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. A direct quotation from the Old Testament, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. And it was a reference to not excommunicating somebody from the people of Israel, but executing. And Paul's not asking them to execute this particular man. He's saying they are outside of the kingdom, they are outside of the visible church, you need to put him out immediately. Now notice what's involved in this punishment here. The Apostle Paul says that he has, in verse 5, delivered such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's delivered this one to Satan. Now that's a a peculiar way of speaking. There's only one other case in the Bible where this kind of language is used. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Apostle Paul used it in respect to Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he said he's delivered them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. But here the Apostle Paul uh, characterizes this handing over to Satan in a very different way. He says he's handing them over for the destruction of the flesh. But what Paul means here is that because of the nature of the sin, this person is going to be not only cast out of the church, but being cast out of the church is the same thing as being handed over to the authority and the tyranny and the lordship of Satan. But here's what Paul says. 
And this is the part that we don't want to miss. This is the warning that we have to embrace here this morning that Paul gives when he talks about the seriousness of sin. He says, when you are kicked out of the church, when you are placed outside the visible body of Christ, it's to be given to Satan for a particular purpose, and that is to destroy the flesh. Physically, what Paul is saying. So that you will be so battered physically by being handed over to Satan that your health will become uh, so uh, bothered, so undermined, that you will finally be humbled to the point that you'll repent. And we don't have a lot of examples of this in Scripture, that Satan can, after he's been given the authority uh, to touch people, but certainly the book of Job would be a good place to go. All kinds of testimony there that, uh, that Satan, when he's been given permission by God, can actually affect people physically. The Paul says this is the penalty. This is what it is to be handed over to Satan. It is to be humble to the point that repentance occurs. And, and you can see that note of gospel hope there at the end of the passage. Where he says, so that his spirit may be saved. I believe that in that last part of verse 5 is the hope of church discipline. Sometimes church discipline is misunderstood to the point that it's almost an act of vengeance. We're angry. We're hurt. Um, To the point that what discipline is about is squashing somebody like a bug. But in fact what the Apostle Paul says, it is for the purpose of humiliation to the point that they will come to their senses and realize what they have done is offensive to God so that they may be saved. Very important what Paul lays down. We have to come back to that thought. So that they may be saved. The aim of church discipline. As we step back from... Uh, this brief exposition of those first few verses there, I think that we can learn a number of things here about church discipline from what Paul says. And the first thing that we would learn from it is church discipline pertains to situations of scandalous sin. This answers the who question. Who is to be disciplined uh, in church discipline cases? And obviously, here it has to do with scandalous sin. This morning we walked through the law as, as we heard the law of God proclaims. It spelled out all the violations of the law. Uh, we, uh, we remarked that it, it, it leads us, it's a guide really, to, to repent. You say, well, what is scandalous sin? If Paul, or rather the scriptures, can enumerate all of these sins here and say, well, this is what it means to transgress the law, to slander and to, and to uh, do injustice to the underprivileged and so forth. And we all engage in, in, a, in a range of those sins. Well, what is scandalous sin? Well, it's probably the case that scandalous sin, first of all, is the kind of sin that goes unrepented of. That the person who is in it absolutely refuses to repent. They decide that their desires are Lord over their hearts and their minds rather than Jesus Christ. That is the beginning point of scandalous sin. To say that I so passionately love the thing that I am engaged in that I know is contrary to God's law that I will now make that the Lord of my heart and my aspirations and my goals and my dreams rather than submitting to Christ. That is the beginning point of scandalous sin. I don't even care what kind of a sin it is. It's to replace Jesus as Lord with desires as Lord. And 
to, to simply not repent. And repentance is not just saying, oh, uh, woe is me, I know I've done something wrong, but, but, and, and mourn over it. But it's the change. It's to make a, a wholehearted effort to change the life. To put away the sin and to replace it with righteousness. So the beginning of scandalous sin doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be some horrific uh, uh, murder-suicide action. It's simply to look at God's law, to refuse to repent of the sins that are in your heart, to allow those sins to have such a stranglehold on you spiritually that you refuse to submit to Christ. But I think scandalous sin also goes beyond that. In this case, we have some guidance, because the Apostle Paul says that it's such a terrifically bad sin uh, that the Gentiles around you would rise up against you and condemn it. There's some guidance there, then, I guess, for what a scandalous sin is. It's so bad that absolutely everybody, if you pulled 10 out of 10 people, would say, yes, that is the kind of transgression that's so offensive that it can't be tolerated. When we find that kind of sin in our midst, the Apostle Paul says, secondly, it has to be disciplined. It has to be disciplined. He says, remove. All that, of course, is to be done in an orderly process. Uh, Many commentators who look at this passage, even some reform types, tend to assume that what Paul is saying is that the entire church should have a meeting. And that the offending party should be charged and sort of put on a trial before everybody. And then everybody listens to the facts of the case. And then they, uh, they cast their vote whether they, this person should be disciplined or not. But I don't agree that that's the process for church discipline. You can turn with me to Matthew 18 where we have uh, enlarged expansion and explanation of the process. Uh, Matthew 18. The very important passage here where Jesus spells out for the church. This is really a part of the uh, church order, or constitution of the church, if you will, when it comes down to discipline cases. And he says in Matthew 18, he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, there's the church idea. There is the sense in which the members of the church participate in the discipline process. It's that one brother finds out that another brother is straying. And the first thing that we are to do in those situations is not grab five people and gossip about the sin in this person's life. But it's to discreetly and privately and graciously and lovingly and winsomely go to that person in private and show them their fault. Again, if that doesn't work, you find somebody discreetly, a second witness, a friend, somebody who also can be trusted in terms of their character and their life, and they go to that person and they say, together, this is not acceptable for you to live in this kind of sin. This is a gross violation of the Word of God. It's come to our attention that you sinned against God in this way, in His Word, and you need to repent. There is the church involvement. So in a sense that it does involve the people of God as a whole. But when you come to verse 17 and 18, it's clear that it moves beyond uh, the corporate level to the official or the office level. Verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. 
And then if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile, as a tax collector. You say, well, how does that prove that it's not to be exercised by the entire body in a congregational kind of a way? Well, verse 18 gives us the deciding or decisive piece of evidence we need. It says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus referring here is the exercise of the office of the keys. And you can see uh, in Matthew 16 where Jesus has already spoken about that. He says in verse 18 of Matthew 16, I also say to you that you're Peter and upon this rock I build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now notice the language. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. There's your answer to, to the Apostle Peter. Jesus Christ gives the keys of the kingdom. That is the key of opening and shutting the kingdom of God. That's precisely what's going on in discipline. It's to open up those keys and to boot people out of the kingdom of God here on earth to place them outside the visible church. As Jesus says, let him become a Gentile or a tax collector. That authority only resides, first of all, in the Apostles who then pass that to the ministers and elders of the church. So there's the responsibility for church discipline rests now, not just on the congregation, but now upon the officers, the elders, the pastors of the church of Jesus Christ. They are the ones who are called upon to exercise the discipline. And that's what the Apostle Paul means here when he says back in 1 Corinthians 5, Verse 4, he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. There you have the keys. It's the same thing. The key represents God's power, Christ's power. And he says, In that power, in the power of the office of the keys, when you're assembled together, you deliver such an one over to Satan. What? That's the process. That's the kind of person. One last thing here I want to say about this. That it it must be done. Here's the hard part of church discipline. Um, You know, you can build a really good case for church discipline if you read the Bible. Because it's clearly there. But honestly, the hard part is doing it. The hard part is doing it, especially when, when we know the person. The hard part of it is when we know uh, that person, we may have had a, a, a lifelong connection to that person. And the hard part is the church following through. And one thing that the church sometimes does, and I won't say typically does, but sometimes does in these kinds of situations, is to look the other way and to pretend, well, we understand that the sin is bad, we understand that it's not good for that person, we understand that it violates God's standards, but they're really deep down in their heart a good person. And they don't really mean to do this. And so we refuse to follow through with the admonitions of God's word. But the problem with that kind of approach to church discipline, or really the lack of discipline, is this. That the preaching of the word of God now suffers. 
Again, come back to these words. Ask yourself the question, why would the Apostle Paul say in verse 1, it's immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Uh, What he's saying here is that the sin is so bad, so obviously contrary to morality, that the people who are watching the church believe that you don't have any standards now. See, this is the problem. When the church refuses to play the good old boy network game of church discipline, it hinders the proclamation of the word of God. Because the world says, sin doesn't matter to the church. The church doesn't really, after all, have any kind of standards of ethics or morality. So what's the point? It impedes, then, the proclamation of the gospel. It's a stumbling block for people to listen to the preaching of the word of God. There's your problem. If we're to prioritize the preaching of the Word, which we're supposed to, then that demands that we exercise discipline. It's a hard thing to do, but it's to be done with the right attitude. I told you I want to come back to that. And I I want to circle into that now as we look secondly at, at a clarification now, I'm still debating in my mind, and may well just come back to this point next week, because there's a lot here in these verses. But look at verse 9 and following. Um, I'd like to unfold this more, but I don't think it's relevant. Just today, Paul talks about a message that he'd sent to them earlier that they weren't to associate with immoral people. It sounds like he's already written them a letter. and The confusion that came out of that letter is, uh, is, is indicated in verse 10. Um, they seem to have believed when he said don't associate with immoral people that he meant don't have friends with people in the world because verse 10 says I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters for then you have to go out of the world you see the point is the apostle Paul is attacking a mentality a fortress mentality of Christianity that the world is so bad that we can't be around it so what we need to do is hide in the church and huddle together in our holy activities and every now and again we lob a rock out of the castle window and that's the preaching of the gospel to the world. You know, we're in the world but way away from it. We're letting our light shine but it's ten miles away from people. Now Paul absolutely blasts that and I think I want to come back to that and talk about it, especially a look at that from the angle of Jesus Christ who is the model of how we engage culture in the world around us. But what I want to key in on here is how we treat people who have been disciplined. The Apostle Paul says, I actually wrote to you, and this is a clarification now, this is our second point, the clarification of how we treat people once they have been disciplined. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with a so-called brother. If he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an adulterer, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now again, this passage is open to misunderstanding. What Paul says, he says, don't associate with a so-called brother. First of all, what is a so-called brother? It is somebody who professes to believe the gospel, but their life is completely contrary to it. And the fact that they are submitting, not to Jesus as Lord over their life, but desire as Lord and sin as Lord. They're so-called. They've made the profession. They say they believe in Christ, but their life betrays the confession. 
They're defiantly living in disobedience to God's word. And so what the Apostle Paul says, with that kind of a person, and I'm assuming here that it's a person that's been disciplined now, yet claims to have a profession, Paul says don't associate. That needs clarification though. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 3. I want you to see this for yourself. Very important point, and here's why. I once, um, I, I, I once heard of a congregation, and this is a Reformed church, that decided that church discipline meant shunning. And, and shunning in this sense, shunning almost like the Amish or the Quakers do, which is that once somebody is placed outside of the midst of the congregation, uh, you're never to talk to them again. And I heard of this church that decided that was going to be their policy for church discipline. And I heard of situations in which members would find somebody who had been disciplined out at the local grocery store. And if they saw them, they'd go the other direction. Uh, They were to avoid contact uh, at all costs, really. As if the person was so utterly contaminated, or like battery acid, if they had contact with them, it would corrode them spiritually to the point that they would be in jeopardy of falling. And, and there was also to be giving a unified public message to that person that they were somehow uh, so evil that they can't even be in any kind of contact at all with believers. And if it did turn about that that person finally got so close by mistake that they interacted with that person, uh, the only thing they could say to them is repent of your sins and walk away. Now I want you to look at how Paul says that this offending so-called brother is to be treated. First of all, in verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. So that he will put to shame. Now that's the very same language you have here in the original over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says if somebody's life is out of order, if it's contrary to the Word of God, and they are impenitently engaging in sin, and refuse to repent, and refuse to follow Jesus Christ, and refuse to submit to the Word, he says, don't associate. You say, ha Shunning is exactly what we're supposed to do. So that they will be put to shame. So they've been so exposed by their life, that they'll want to turn away from their sin. But look at verse 15. Here's the balance. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, this is going to bring us back into the point of church discipline after all anyway. I said we'd come back to the point. On one hand, the Apostle Paul says, yes, you have to indicate by the way you interact with them that we're not on the same level right now. We don't share the same ideas. We don't seem to share the same purpose and sense of direction in our life because you've chosen to violate God's Word. And so we make it clear somehow by our attitudes and the way we interact, yeah, there's something that's damaged in our relationship. But Paul does not talk about this concept of shunning in the, in the sense that we don't have any contact with these people anymore. He says they're not an enemy, number one. They are not an enemy to you. But what I find to be even more interesting here is what he says, you are to admonish them as a brother. In other words, as a member of the family. What he is saying is that you are to show love to them. I don't believe what the Apostle Paul is meaning here is, hey brother, 
you're in sin. I don't think that's it. I think by calling that person still a brother, like a family member, it implies love. And love implies relationship. Love implies contact. And love implies something else that you desperately desire to see that person brought back under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That you build the kind of relationship with them so that they will have an open ear to you when it's time to listen. There's the balance. Yeah, we make it clear that this is a violation of the Word of God. It's not acceptable. It's not right. Church discipline is to draw that line to say there are standards of contact for participation in this community. And if you don't want to follow those, we're sorry. You can't name the name of Christ. But on the other hand, coming back to 1 Corinthians 5, It's to deliver such a one over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved. It's an aim to this. It's not to crush the person. It's not to be vindictive and mean-spirited and, and gouge their heart out. It's that their spirit may be saved. You know, it's to go after that person in love. And to say, you know what? I value you as a person. I value you. I love you. That's the only basis that somebody could operate on to seek to restore somebody back to Jesus Christ as they love them in the first place. I want us to be clear about this as a congregation. And sometimes that some people are so far out of line that for a time you can't interact with them because they're so dangerous in how they live. We have some of that here. They're so dangerous in their life that we cannot interact with them right now. The time may come when, when we see the, the, the danger, and I, I don't mean just spiritual, I mean physical danger. But a time may come when they come to their senses and what our obligation is to do when we sense that is to go to them and begin to work on them to bring them back. And it takes some wisdom to know how to do that. There are times when we have to administer tough love. And we have to say, you go live your way that you want. You go into the world. You go into the heart of darkness and you live out your desires. Uh, we can't accept what you're doing here. We cannot, uh, we cannot facilitate it. We cannot assist you in it. And so we may have to do the very hard thing of saying, the door is open, go out. But when we begin to see the signs of an inclination within that the Lord is working, do we extend love back again? You know, I, I hear sometimes a very wrong attitude of Christians towards the discipline, that they can just go rotten hell. That is not what we're saying. Paul says we deliver such a one to Satan for the purpose of their spirit being saved. It has a gospel aim. It has a restoration aim. Paul calls upon us to have a balance. 
So that's a clarification. There's a last thing I want to see in our passage here. Because really it's critical to the entire admonition that he gives to the church. It's critical to the admonition. Basically, uh, Paul speaks of here now, verses 6 through 8, the necessity of self-discipline. There is such a thing as church discipline, but there's also a necessity of self-discipline that goes along with the entire issue of church discipline. And the first thing that he says in verse 6 is that your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. The fact that you have no standards morally, the fact that your standards are lower than the standards of the culture around you, which is an entirely morally bankrupt culture, is a problem. It's arrogance. And then he goes on to give them a warning. He says, a little leaven leavens the lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I thought about that. Most of us are not bakers. I'm not. What's a way we could translate that? And maybe this won't work for you at all either. But it used to be popular in the 80s to uh, build these big domino uh, displays at exhibitions. I don't know if you ever saw Ripley's Believe It or Not, but I think I saw it on there. It was on all kinds of things in the 80s. Guys would spend days and days and days and days building these massive domino exhibitions and then do the heartbreaking thing of touching the first one so that a week's worth of work gets wiped out in mere seconds as one domino hits the other and spreads throughout the entire exhibition. Now, I don't know if that helps you, but that's the sense. One sin affects the entire set of dominoes. Or one domino affects the entire set of dominoes. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. One sin, cherished and harbored and not repented of in the heart and the life, affects the entire life. That's what sin does. Here's the idea. You can't put a a, a locker room in your heart. And you say, you know what, I'm going to designate that locker with this sin. And I'm just going to stick it in there. And when I want that sin, I'll walk up to the locker. I'll take it out and I'll enjoy the sin for a while. When I'm done with it, I'll put it back in that locker and it'll stay there. One sin, Paul says, spreads throughout the life. There's the warning. Now, this is, this is to the church. This is to every single individual here. I said the connection is self-discipline to church discipline. If there's no self-discipline, if there's no self-governing, if there's no awareness on the part of the individual believers that they have a duty to, to stand watch against sin, then church discipline will be required. Paul was saying, this is what we need to do if we don't want to have to deal with the difficult problem, the uncomfortable, the unsavory problem of church discipline. Discipline yourself. Be aware of sin. You can't compartmentalize it and store it away. It will affect your whole life. Here's what we're supposed to do. Not regard sin, not compartmentalize it, not to tuck it away in your locker and pretend that it's not going to affect anybody else. He says in verse 8, clean out the leaven. Clean it out. And then in verse 8, so that you can celebrate the feast. 
clean out the leaven. Now, to understand this, you need to realize what Paul was doing. He's borrowing from Exodus chapter 12 and the celebration of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there was an obligation of Israel, which was on the 14th day of the first month, to clean out all of the leaven in their homes. They were to sweep the house clean so there wasn't even a trace or a hint of leaven. And they were to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread for an entire week with no leaven in the home. And this was so significant and so important to God that if a person was found with leaven in their home, God didn't merely excommunicate them, but demanded the death penalty. Now that's the backdrop here to the images and the language that Paul uses here in these verses. He says, clean it out. He says, your life is like the feast of unleavened bread. You get the broom out and you sweep your heart and your life clean of the leaven. That's sin. He says, you look at your life and you clean out the sin. You celebrate the feast. And the feast is obviously a reference by analogy to the feast of unleavened bread. And he says, this is what the Christian life is like. Sweeping the life clean of the leaven, of the sin, and celebrating the feast. That is walking in obedience. Now that is a very, very tall order. In fact, it is so utterly convicting. If you really meditate on what Paul is saying here, he's saying your life is to be free of sin. That's huge. We all know that that's not going to happen. That's the goal. But you see, Paul is giving us a mindset as Christians. This is the way that we are to deal with sin. We're to be constantly uprooting it, constantly fighting it, constantly sweeping it clean. Why? Well, Paul gives you the answer. Look at verse 7. It's the second part of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So we're back to the Gospel again. We're back to the Gospel again. Why is it that your life is to be a perpetual celebration of the feast, which means sweeping out the sin? He said, well, here's why. Because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. He died for your sin. Remember what the Passover lamb was about. The lamb was slain, the blood was taken, and it was rubbed on the doorpost of the house. And as the angel of vengeance came across those houses, he was looking for that blood. And the house didn't have that blood there. God poured out his wrath and killed the firstborn in every house. Now the faithful Israelites who did that didn't experience God's judgment, but the Egyptians, as you know, all lost the firstborn in their homes. And here is the point of the imagery, that Jesus Christ shed His blood to deliver us from wrath. And the wrath was there because of sin. Paul is saying, if you claim Jesus Christ is your Passover, if He is your deliverer from the wrath of God against your sin, then you cannot harbor the very sins what Jesus died for in your life. And serve sin as if it's Lord 
rather than Christ. That's a fairly clear message. That's a fairly clear message. And it's hard. I think that it makes us all kind of hang our heads. That's what I feel like. I think it makes us all hang our heads this morning. Because we're not living that life. And so we end this morning with a couple of admonitions. First of all, first of all, we're to follow the commands. We're to heed the warnings. You can't take sin and put it into a compartment and just think that it stays there. One sin leads to the next and corrupts the soul. Paul says that's old leaven. That's old way of life. That's old man. And the warning is that we must see the consequence. If we are not the kind of Christians that look at our lives and analyze our lives and lie to the law and keep on repenting and keep on seeing where we need change and keep on pleading the blood of Jesus over our sins and keep on going back to Him for His grace, sin is going to overwhelm us. It's going to overtake us. And it is going to corrode us spiritually. And so for all of us here this morning who are not in the practice of that life of repentance, that life of saying, yes, Lord, I see my sins. I'm sorry for my sins. I crucify my sins. I plead with you for the forgiveness of my sins. We have to be warned this morning. Being a Christian is not always about having all the right answers to the catechism. It's about obeying. Christ calls us to submit to Him as Lord. What he calls Christians to do is a life of gratitude. And that gratitude flows out of knowing our sin and our misery. That we would go to Jesus and embrace his sacrifice. And so if we're not doing this this morning, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, the second admonition of our passage is to go to the Passover lamb. It's to go to the Passover lamb. It's to run to Christ. Flee to Christ crucified as a refuge. Flee to Him. Ask for forgiveness. And you know the really wonderful thing about the way Paul structures his his admonition here. Not just here, but across the New Testament letters. Is that if the Christian does that, they have every assurance that Jesus hears and that Jesus forgives. What does church discipline mean to us this morning? It means we're called to self-discipline. And it means we're called to flee to Christ. To run to Him as our refuge, as our deliverer, as our Passover lamb. I admonish us all to begin there. To run to Christ. And then, to discipline our lives. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, We are humbled before these admonitions this morning. We truly are because we are uh, sinful in our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our motives and our desires. We are. We acknowledge that before you. We have not kept the feast. Lord, we do 
come before you and plead with you for your mercy upon us. We plead with you that you give us ears to hear this message. That you would give us the wisdom to know how to maintain the balance that you've called for. That you would give us the conviction of heart and mind that there are eternal divine standards of righteousness that we have to submit to if we want to be called your children. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to submit. You'd give us the grace to hear. That you'd give us the grace to obey. And that you would impress upon us again and again that you are our deliverer through Jesus Christ. You have washed us with our sins through his precious blood. And so let us take our sins of that blood and then strengthen us to live out of gratitude because of that blood. That our whole life would be lived as a feast, as a celebration, as a life of gratitude for your great love and care for us in Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen.